if we're, we're talking about the fine tuning argument, I take the fine tuning argument to be a sort of an extension of, of a very basic, it's not even an argument, it's just kind of an instinct. You know, why do most people who've ever lived and still live believe that there's a God? Well, one of the reasons might be if you look around at the universe and there are various bits and pieces of it that seem to fit well together in a way that you might think, you know, needs a mind. Welcome, everybody, to another exciting episode of the Into the Impossible podcast featuring yours truly, Dr. Brian Keating, and my friend, Luke Barnes, who is a lecturer, that's like a professor, of astronomy and cosmology at the University of Western Sydney, Australia. And he is one of the most renowned thinkers and authors, popularizers of science. He's done so much. He's written two wonderful books, one that we've had him on previously for. You'll hear a little bit about that, The Cosmic Revolutionary's Handbook, written with his advisor, Garrett Lewis, who's been on the show twice as well, as well as another book called A Fortunate Universe, from what this interview is loosely based on. And that has to do with the fine-tuning of the universe and how the universe could be designed for life. And it comes from Dr. Barnes, Professor Barnes, who is a former, I should stress, former young Earth creationist who believed originally... Uh, during his upbringing with his father as a pastor in a church that really maintained that the earth was only about 5,700 years old and that all of science and all appearance of it could be explained through a biblical narrative where God essentially imposes upon us a viewpoint that we can't help but be confused about. <laughs> um, so obviously he, he doesn't further that anymore, believing as he does in a 13.8 billion year old universe and a 4.5 billion year old earth. But he also uh, is able to converse from a, a theological perspective, believing that God does play a role in his life as a Christian. He is not one of the many, many Messianic Jews or Jews for Jesus that I have interacted with lately. He is an actual, uh, he's an actual Christian for Jesus. Let me say it like that. He's very devout and very passionate about his faith, but he's also incredibly philosophical, learned, and a great educator and really fun rock on tour. And it was great to meet with him and see him in person and do this interview in person. And I want to commend to you his books and we'll hear about them in this interview, why he believes that the universe may indeed be finely tuned, how it could be finely tuned. In other words, how does God twiddle the knobs, so to speak, to tune the universe in the way that he does? And other than that, I think the most fascinating thing is that he's able to converse. You know, I always ask myself, would Richard Dawkins come to a meeting of young, former young earth creationists, or even though they're now not young earth creationists, would, would Lawrence Krauss have a big conversation with a theologian? Uh, and he has, but, but, um, but I always feel that the kind of more theologically inclined folks are a little bit more um, accessible or open to the conversational debate, not just to score points and win. I, I think all debate is pointless. I mean, has anyone ever been convinced you know, not to vote for somebody for president because of some debate. I mean, you usually go in with preconceived notions. I'm sure some people do, but it's only for the worst. You, know? <laughs> you went in thinking you might vote for someone and then you ended up not voting for that person. Anyway, um, this is all to say, I hope you enjoy this episode. It's kind of a departure in some ways because it's with um, a more theological overtone to it, although we talk about the nitty gritty scientific details as well, as you'll hear. Watch the video of the two of us online at Dr. Brian Keating on YouTube. And don't forget to subscribe to my mailing list where you will find a fragment potentially waiting for you of an old Earth or an old solar system. Here they are right here. I'm shaking them up. These are meteorites that I've collected over the years from a 4 billion plus year old asteroid fragment that crashed through the Earth and became a meteorite, honest to goodness, meteorite here on Earth. And you can enter for your chance to win one of the next 100 entries into this 
competition at my website, briankeating.com slash list, and you will have a chance at winning one of these precious fragments of an ancient solar system. And I hope that you'll also subscribe to the podcast and leave a review and asterism. I'm looking, I do get reviews from Australia all the time, uh, but I haven't gotten one in the last 30 days, so I can't uh, quote any of my Australian listeners. I know there are many. Um, I'm looking at you, Stephanie, someone out there, you'll know who you are. Uh, but this uh, review came in recently from Great Britain, where Luke did his uh, PhD work and did his uh, postdoctoral work, Cambridge and, uh, and beyond. And this comes from Super Cyan. Uh, just a couple days ago, makes hard science convincingly comprehensive for the non-scientific people like me. I love it. Well, thank you, Super Cyan. I endeavor to do that. And I'll bring you scientists, Nobel Prize winners, many, many more brilliant thinkers to come. Stay tuned. You won't want to miss some of the great episodes that are coming up in just the next few weeks alone. So with that, I bid you a benevolent entry into the kingdom of science with Dr. Luke Barnes and yours truly, Brian Keating. Enjoy. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Dr. Luke Barnes joining me in person in an undisclosed location <laughs> for undisclosed reasons. We've been yes, brought together. <laughs> <laughs> Do you expect me to believe that, Mr. Barnes? <laughs> uh, Mr. Barnes? Uh, Dr. Barnes is a lecturer uh, at the university. I always forget. University of, is it Western? It was the University of Western Sydney, Sydney. and then they paid a lot of money to change it to Western Sydney University. You know so how I'll much consulting right. fees they had to pay? Oh, yeah. I don't, don't want to say. Did you change mascots from the fighting? I wasn't there, thank goodness. <laughs> from the, the fighting wallaby to the uh to the dingoes uh it's a pleasure to meet you in person yeah yeah uh, we exactly. last spoke uh together about two years ago mm-hmm. for a previous book of yours called the cosmic revolutionaries handbook which laid out the case um for sort of um proponents of alternatives to the standard big bang cold dark matter mm-hmm. cosmology yeah what they would have to do to overthrow it overturn it and mm-hmm. maybe we'll start there um how, how does it feel to have your book utterly obliterated by the forces that have proven based on JWST data <laughs> that the Big Bang never happened. How do you feel, Luke? How do, will you ever recover from that devastating blow? Or what's your take on it in all seriousness? Uh, I think collectively, a lot of cosmologists, so what we're referring to, JWST results came out and a, a, a paper, uh, as a, an article came out from okay. Eric Lerner, and this was treated as something new, something dangerous, something's going to overthrow the establishment. Panic. And panic, panic, yeah. And without going into it too much, basically there's the same um, objections to the Big Bang that he published in 1993 without a lot of changes. Uh, There's two things to say about it. One is there's been plenty of, this isn't a secret, there are plenty of online people who are in cosmology um, who, who responded to those critiques you know, weigh them up yourself. And the other thing is it was really, it wasn't really about the Big Bang. It was about the physics of how galaxies form. So at worst, worst case scenario, we need to rethink the way we think that matter collects into galaxies in the universe. But it didn't really touch the expansion of space, the the hot Big Bang, the sort of the real pillars of the Big Bang theory. Yeah. Uh, when we look at the Big Bang, previous books of yours, uh, including with uh, your former advisor, right? Uh, those, so the Cosmic Revolutionaries Handbooks is Garrett Lewis, your yep. former advisor. 
um, and uh, who's at New South Wales, is that right? Uh, Sydney University, oh, in, Sydney in, University. In, New South Wales. in New South Wales. It's so confusing. <laughs> you know, it's everything's upside down. Uh, <laughs> um, we, we had a conversation recently as well, but you also wrote a book uh, prior to that uh, with him. Uh, remind mm-hmm. me of the name of that, Luke. It's called uh, A Fortunate Universe, Life in a Finely Tuned Cosmos. So I thought we'd start there. A lot of the discussions that we've been having this this week um, with eminent scientists from around the world tend to involve around things um, pertinent to biology, chemical life formation, the improbability of mm. forming a lipid cell structure and eukaryotic life and, and so forth. Very stimulating. Uh, I wouldn't say, you know, this, this positive one way or another, but oftentimes we look at the universe and we're told it's extremely finely tuned. Mm-hmm. And that no secret would lead to the title of that book, A Fortunate Universe, mm-hmm. fortunate implying some teleological purpose and uh, maybe some some ultimate uh, ultimate beneficence of, of something or someone or some uh, force. Uh, so what is fine-tuning, first of all? Where, where does it come from? And, and what is the, mm. the weak anthropic principle, WAP? Uh, and <laughs> and how, is it, how does it all come together in the cosmological argument? So the, the nice thing about that book with Geraint was we, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian, he's an atheist. We wrote that book together and most of it we wrote together. The last chapters are sort of debate about what it all means. But on this fine tuning issue, here's what a, a Christian, a theist and, a, and an atheist can agree about the science. So he interprets fortunate as lucky in in the context of a multiverse. But the thing we agree on is something that's turned up in the in the physics literature over the last sort of 40 or 50 years, where there are these fundamental constants of nature, when we boil things down as we love to, as physicists, to the deepest equations we can find, there are some basic properties of the universe that just need to go into those equations. How heavy is an electron? How strong are the forces between them? Um, And into the standard cosmological model. Uh, What's the ratio of dark matter to baryonic matter, ordinary matter? Um, what's the value of the cosmological constant, which is causing the expansion of the universe to accelerate? They're, they're just numbers. Just that you can look them up. There's some number that all of these are. And what's been just sort of discovered almost accidentally, if, if uh, um, or certainly it wasn't expected over the last 50 years, was as, as theoretical physicists asked, what if we change them? We don't know why they are what they are. So let's at least ask the question, what if they'd been different? You find universes which are perfectly mathematically fine as a, you know, we can write equations down and we can solve those. But um, for a number of those constants uh, over the range in which the equations are fine with them, what you might think is there, what's possible, you only get uh, an interesting universe like this, which has any sort of structure in it at all, including life, for a very small range of the constants. So this is called the fine tuning of the universe for life. And as I said, you know, two scientists who have very different beliefs about what's really underneath it all can at least agree on what happens when you change these numbers. Yeah, we'll get into hopefully the discussion of, you know, what fine tuning is, how it could be accomplished Mm -hmm. in a moment. But before we do, um, uh, recently I've been reading some work by uh, Fred Adams at University Mm -hmm. of Michigan, and, and he's been on the podcast although i think I, I may have deleted the recording by accident by accident Fred. Uh, <laughs> we'll do it again. before i became such a pro as you guys can all tell <laughs> out there and in, in uh internet land um i want to do it again yeah because he is a phenomenal thinker and he was at uc san diego uh, visiting his close colleague george fuller is a good friend of mine 
Um, and in his most recent papers, which I believe will be a book supported, I believe, by the Templeton Foundation, if mm. I'm not mistaken, uh, which kind of ironic is Templeton Foundation tends to support things that seek synthesis, if not harmony between science and religion. And some people have a problem with that, be that as it may. Um, Fred argues that, no, in fact, some of these wide ranging phenomena are uh, are actually broadly tuned or, you know, mm. coarsely tuned. Uh, for example, he sets the stage, which is the first comment I'd like you to make. Um when we apply our perspective from the weak anthropic principle, we're, we're necessarily filtering out a whole host of variables to concentrate on a select few variables. Um, and his uh, and his kind of uh, rubric, he looks at stars. What would it take to find oh, yeah. stars? Uh, gravitational forces, electromagnetic forces, nuclear forces. And he finds there's a huge parameter space, to use his words. It's not mm. improbable at all. Um, first of all, I want to ask you, is there necessarily kind of a, an anthropic bias when you have to when you search out? Well, what does it mean to be finely tuned? And then, second of all, how do you react to his claim that no, the universe ain't so finely tuned after all? So, uh, first of all, Fred's doing absolutely first first rate work on this. It's it's really yeah, great and really helpful. Mm -hmm. um, I've, I've tried to sort of follow a little bit in his footsteps, and so I, I've published a few papers on this as well. Uh, what Fred, one way I would summarize some of his work is to say that stars turned out to be more robust than we gave them credit for. So in the early fine-tuning literature, this goes back quite early, actually, in 1970, I think it's a paper by Freeman Dyson, who said... First guest on the podcast. Oh, wonderful. Mm -hmm. Oh, um, if you... Uh, if I've got it right, I might have wrong. Anyway, <laughs> uh, in our universe, if you take a proton and a proton and you smash them together, they will not stick to each other. That those two will fall apart. The way the sun uh, operates is you take a proton, a proton, smash them together, and you hope that in that instant where they're close to each other, thanks to something called the nuclear weak force, proton turns into a neutron, and proton plus neutron will stick together. Yeah. Um, what uh, uh, Dyson had argued is that if you had a very small increase in the strength of the force that sticks those two types of particles together, you could actually stick a proton and a proton to each other. And if that happened, stars would be explosive because now it's really easy. You don't have to wait for the weak force to turn one of them into a neutron, proton, proton, bang, you know, you just blow everything up. What Fred pointed out quite rightly is that um, that's not true. A star is what we call a thermodynamic system where the, the micro details of, of reaction rates are actually controlled by the overall balances of 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 heat and, and energy flowing so you won't get an explosive star you'll simply get a star which is cooler in its center and will 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 react appropriately to the fuel it's got to to power itself so actually you can have perfectly long-lived stars in those sorts of universes and and this is what needs to happen in this fine-tuning anthropic principle kind of uh investigation we need to know what happens when these constants change. And and sometimes, because it's not our universe, we're thinking about you know, weird alternatives. Sometimes we get it wrong and we just have to rethink it. And Fred's done some great work. So stars turn out to be more um, robust than, than perhaps we thought. Mm -hmm. I think there there's there is, in fact, one way he discovered where stars can fall apart in a way we didn't think of before. If you look at his 2008 paper and you change the strength of electromagnetism, there is a, there's a famous plot in there. Well, <laughs> I say famous. I've looked at it a billion times. <laughs> uh, 
where we knew stars would be in trouble if electromagnetism was too strong, but it turns out there's a way they could be in trouble if they're too weak as well. There's, it's a two-sided thing there. But in general, yes, yeah, stars are quite robust. You can you can sort of hope in any old universe you might get stars to fire up and 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 be long lived. The main driver of the 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 uh, lengths of the sort of lifetimes of stars is really the strength of gravity rather than the nuclear. The for a wide range of parameters, the nuclear uh, property, the nuclear reactions will adjust. Um, but overall, I think that there's still very strong cases of fine tuning that. We've done, you know, calculations again and again and refined them as Fred's done, as I've done, and as, as other people have done, looking more deeply. And and they have retained their look, here's a set of possibilities, and it's only a small subset where life can exist. So yes, yes, we, of course we keep doing calculations to refine it. But I, I wouldn't say it's it's this is just any old universe. Mm -hmm. And when we look at the, you know, overall kind of um sieve, you know, that that physicists apply to the observations and then select out certain components that we think are dispositive or might be dispositive towards the origin of life mm -hmm. and evolution of life. I find it, you know, sort of the physical constants are almost the easy part. Um, and I kind of make an analogy towards, well, COVID-19 and, and it's one of our first, you know, it's the first time we're meeting in public and it's the first, you know, one of some of the first in-person podcasts I've, I've had the opportunity right. to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I think back to 2019 when we were building the Simons Observatory, which is my ongoing project with 300 collaborators around the world, cool. uh, including some in Australia. You'll be pleased to know. And, uh, and we're putting it together. And be, you know, to do that properly, we had to have a analysis of risks to the project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we had things like the uh, Chilean peso might fluctuate against the euro, which is where we build some of the hard metal works that we have. And then concrete comes from Bolivia. And maybe it come, you know, there's shipping challenge, you know, whatever. There's some fluctuations and there's you know, stochastic processes. You could model those. And, and uh, it could be a strike and you could even have some punctuated <laughs> things. Wow, yeah. Yeah. It happens in That's South America. You, know? think about. you never know. Yeah, these are experimentalists. We have to be uh, quite quite on top of things uh, from, from many different angles. But one thing we didn't have, no one had, was global pandemic shuts down the yeah. world for two and a half years. Uh, causing things like, you know, my graduate student, I can't just say to her, you know, see in two years, I'm going to stop paying you now yeah. and uh, come back in two years. No, yeah. we had a, a sustain. So we did. But um, it's sort of to bring up the notion of these punctuations, these radical things that occur in order for there to be life on Earth, um, you know, and why we think that the physical properties of the universe are the most contingent. And, and so I, I guess you know, if you had to select a few, you know, kind of uh, from your studies of, of the fortunate nature of the universe, what are some of the ones that speak loudest to you of some perhaps, you know, organization of the universe? I don't want to say designer, if you want mm -hmm. to, it's fine. But um, but how do you, uh, what do you feel are some of the most pertinent and calculatable properties of the universe that, that we can draw some conclusions about how fortunate we are or not? Yeah. Because it's we're at the level of, of of fundamental physics, and we're trying to go from these fundamental constants up. Actually, it's really hard to do calculations right from the bottom up to anything, even from quarks to protons. That this is all the stuff you discover when you start digging in. That's really hard, and then protons to, to nuclei to atoms. So, what we really focus on when we do try and do fine tuning work is. Is there a? It's sort of the reverse of the question you asked. Is there a real disaster somewhere in space, in 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 possibility space, parameter space, that that's going to help? That's going to be obvious. That okay, no structure over there, 
And some of the more obvious ones are if you look at the masses of the fundamental particles that we're made out of. So famously, the, there's the electron in our atoms, that thing going around the outside. There's, pro, there's, there's sorry, up quarks and down quarks that make protons and neutrons. So how heavy are those? And there's a number there. We can, it's very small in any sort of kilogram scale. And the then, then the sort of particle physicists get to work saying, what happens if you start changing these numbers and you map out the three-dimensional space and, and you can see it mapped out in the book. But some of the really interesting kind of disasters are, are things like if you change the, the numbers, that say the masses of the quarks in a certain way, um, you end up that the, the lightest kind of particle that you can make out of three quarks, right, is not the proton or the neutron, it's something else. It's a mm -hmm. three up quarks or the delta plus particle. Mm -hmm. If you're in a universe where that's the most stable thing you can make out of the quark, here's the problem. You, you could, through very simple energy arguments, come to the conclusion that a, a, a delta plus particle, delta plus plus particle will not stick to another one ever, right? And so suddenly your periodic table is gone because that proton sticks to neutron, sticks to everything else. That's how you build up all the nuclei on the periodic table. Suddenly all you've got is a particle with the, mat with the charge of two electrons. So it has the chemistry of helium, which is to say no chemistry at all. And suddenly you've got a universe where it's just so drastically simpler than our universe. You, you, if you want to write a chemistry textbook, there's one element in the periodic table. There's no chemical reactions. That's a pretty easy textbook to write, except there's nothing to write it on or with. Uh, and so it's those sorts of cases where once you start to see those sorts of things inhabiting big swathes of the way the universe could have been, um, you start to really think that, okay, there's something interesting going on around here. You know, 92 stable elements in the periodic table, the chemistry of carbon, we've really got it going on around here. Another one that 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 cosmologists will be more familiar with is just the cosmological constant. Um, it's, it's a famous, there's called the cosmological constant problem, uh, which says, you know, we've discovered in our universe something that's making the expansion accelerate. So galaxies are not just moving away from us. They're moving faster today than they were yesterday. And um, what could be doing that? Well, it turns out in, in the way we describe the fundamental structure of particles around us, we use things called fields. So an electron is really a sort of ripple in an electron field. And if it were the case that even when there's no particles in a particular place, there's still some energy there, that would that would cause the expansion of the universe to accelerate. It has that that effect on that gravitational effect on space time. And if you then use a kind of calculation that we can do in other places in in quantum field theory of how does you know how does the structure of the vacuum, the structure of the field when nothing's there, when no particles are there, uh, how does that structure you know add up to an energy difference? You end up with a, a rough calculation that would, would predict an enormous value of the cosmological constant. And that's a problem because it's, it's another very easy way to make sure there's no structure in the universe because space would expand so fast that, that no particles are ever near each other. So even if this proton and this neutron could come together to make something, they're a trillion light years apart. Mm -hmm. And it's these sorts of disasters 
where okay we can we can debate structures of stars there's some really interesting edge cases and 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 complicated cases but there's some real proper disasters waiting us out for that in in sort of the ways that according to the best physics we have the universe could have been but isn't mm. <clears throat> are any of the arguments you think capable of convincing somebody you know of the existence of some sort of overarching teleological purpose uh for these or do you think you know there'll always be sort of room for doubt i, I spoke mm. to uh, jim tour at this conference earlier um in the day and and asked him you know as as a as a you know someone who is practicing but mm-hmm. might be considered agnostic myself mm-hmm. um i do practice in contradistinction to people like freeman dyson who was called himself agnostic but didn't do anything different than right. freeman dyson than uh, richard dawkins didn't go to the same mm-hmm. church that freeman dyson didn't go to <laughs> uh but but you know wondering is there any kind of um you know hope of of convincing people i usually feel like i don't engage in debates because science isn't done that way and also because you never change your mind like i don't know if you guys have prime minister debates and 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 uh and australia i assume you do at some level they're a bit pathetic yeah but yeah. we i mean we never ch- oh yeah oh trump made a great argument let me just i'm gonna vote for him I, you know i don't find him uh, objectionable at all uh but you know how do you how do you view this is it is it sort of just people wanting to vent their own ideas without any help of really convincing the other side or could you see your faith strengthened or maybe weakened by an argument you know either on your side or on maybe an opposition side yeah, the the one thing that all of this, so I started looking into this sort of almost by accident during my PhD. The one thing I can't predict is how people react to it. It's kind of hilarious. One of the reasons Geraint and I wrote a book on this is because uh, I wrote a review paper uh, um, in 2012. And then um, some people asked, oh, could you do a talk on that stuff? That looks interesting. Just at the um, uh, at Sydney University, where I was at the time. And, uh, you know, the department turns up give us just pretty standard talk. Um, Geraint was there as well as everyone else. And then something happened that I've not seen before or since, which 45 minute talk and an hour and a half of questions afterwards. Everyone just sat around, which is amazing because it was lunchtime, but no one left. We have, and not just that there were questions, but immediately people had not just opinions, but different opinions. And so someone would ask a question and someone else would answer it and then someone else would reply to that. Mm. And so it wasn't just people wanted to get information out of me. I'd laid the ground rules and now everyone wanted to talk about what this meant. And I've seen that again and again and again in, in as talking to, you know, I've talked in churches, I've talked in like skeptics in the pub uh, groups, all sorts of you know amateur astronomy societies. And more than any other topic I've ever seen in my life, people just immediately are like, uh, either, either this has got to mean something, or I know what this means, and I have to tell everyone. Um, and yeah, it just has that effect, and, and I love it for it because I love a the physics is wonderful. How this affects this, and that affects that, and these equations, it's beautiful. Uh, and then just the way it lights people up. And so it, there's every reaction to this under the sun. Mm-hmm. I mean, me personally, I already believed in God, and so this was sort of, I don't have a problem here. I've I've heard of a uh, of someone else who did a talk on on fine tuning, um, uh, and then someone in the audience said afterwards, "Look, I don't believe in God. I'm not sorry. I'm not religious, but something weird is happening here." And I think that impression is sort of there. But um, what I love about it is people can't sit still in their seat. Some yeah. it just it just draws opinions out of people. You have to have an opinion. You know? apologize for the the siren sound in the background. You know, there's a. Uh... 
some carabinary somewhere uh, chasing after somebody. Whereas a, I call them the carbonary because they're always uh, trying yeah, to get me some pasta. Some wine emergency up the mountain. <laughs> That's right. We've been out of Reno. <laughs> There's no more. Um, so uh, getting back to uh, sort of more, you know, on the technical uh, side of things that your research is is concerned with is actually not these topics. You're actually practicing as a, a theoretical cosmologist uh, on a daily basis. You, you were talking earlier in the week about, you know, a course that you're teaching, maybe for undergraduates, where you mm. get into actually philosophical mm. arguments, uh, but not necessarily pertinent to God or no, anything no, like no, that. So not at all. can you talk more about your teaching? It sounded uh, very interesting. And we, we talked a little bit about quantum mechanics and does Aristotle have anything to do with quantum mechanics? I, yeah, what, yeah, so yeah. what is the role of, of, of the ancients? Because, you know, in my conception, Aristotle yeah, basically has the highest ratio of fame the number of things he got right. Uh, you know, I can only think of one thing that was absurd. I mean, you could have discovered just by dropping this and I'm not going to do it, but uh, dropping these two things that weigh very different amounts back then that they don't hit the ground at the same time. No one doesn't fall faster than the other as he presupposed. Wait, 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 wait. Now, now do it with a leaf. Oh, okay. I'll do it with a leaf. Right. <laughs> go to the moon. Well, so this is, oh, there's so many wonderful, wonderful things to talk about there. Yeah. Let me start with the teaching. I got put in charge of a course at Western Sydney called Scientific Literacy, and all the first-year science students take it. Mm. And what it was was a number of things. It was sort of, well, a welcome to university. Here's how to do well. Um, and here's how to reference properly and research properly. So let's just make sure all that's good. Mm-hmm. You know, don't plagiarize and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> don't. Um, how to how to write properly, which is something I'm actually quite passionate about, yeah. uh, how to give a talk properly. And then there's a real chance to take a couple of lectures just to say, what's this science thing? What are we actually doing here? And th- there's two approaches that I take there. It, one's a very, very rapid history of science broadly construed, uh, where that I, you know, I don't think science by one definition, science started with the scientific revolution. But on a more broad, let's try and understand the world we live in. It's it's a very human activity. So we have experts in um, Aboriginal Australian Aboriginal astronomy at Western Sydney. So I was able to get one of those experts, Ray Norris, to give a a twenty minute talk on that, which was really fascinating. Um, as a as a yeah, we can talk about that if you want. Uh, but but the Babylonians and the Greeks and so getting on to Aristotle, I have, a, I have a very high regard for Aristotle. Um, part of that comes from um, a few things. There's a wonderful book. Uh, he, the, the man's surname is L-E-R-O-I, and I, I suspect it's not pronounced Leroy, but uh, maybe something French that's equivalent to that. Uh, it's called, it's called um, Aristotle's Lagoon. And he read all of Aristotle's immense works on um biology mm-hmm. and as a as in a modern biologist mm-hmm. we could sort of try to under un- untangle the logic of why he thought that when he's wrong why is he wrong and, mm-hmm. and what does he get right and there's there is a remarkably hard deep thinker and a close observer of nature in aristotle this idea that he just sat in an armchair like this no no of course there. i mean but that's a paradox of him so one thing that i the one thing that sticks in my mind that he got right maybe in the lagoon was that m- whales are mammals not fish, mm. as men, people had thought for yep. millennia, right? So, you know, so therefore he he was aware of the observational component of the pre-scientific method. 
and just to, you know, rebut, just to be a little bit more harsh on him than I know you are. Yeah, yeah, I'm a big fan of his too, but, but let me just say that, you know, it's not like Galileo had like the large Hadron Collider available to him. But, <laughs> yes. Know, yes he dropped a couple hundred miles from here. He dropped uh, some, you know, some objects that were available to Aristotle from a height available to Aristotle did the observations and no, and, or and did a thought experiment. If you have two masses connected by a string, mm. are they one mass of a given weight? No. So you could do the thought experiment or the actual experiment. And it seems to me that Aristotle did neither not condemning him, but what can we learn um, about, about, you know, the scientific method from somebody who was often, at least in the physical sciences. Yeah. That's a, that's a crucial question. That's yeah. a, that's a very good way to put it. I think here's one of the things which is 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 logical if you're Aristotle, but with hindsight actually causes a lot of the problems. He he made a distinction between natural motion and violent motion. Mm. So if if I drop something and it, it it falls to the ground, he's saying, well, it's made of earth, earth natural places at the bottom of the universe. And mm. so it's seeking out its natural place. If I lift it back up again. That's something violent I'm doing. I'm moving it away from its place. And so that requires an agent. If you think that, then experimentation is violent motion. You're not mm. seeing nature. You're seeing what you're interfering, mm. right? Where So um, we think of, and, and it's so natural to us, when, 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 I, when we say um, if you drop two things with different masses, they fall at the same rate. And... The thing you have to remember is that what we're putting in brackets after that is in a vacuum. Now, Aristotle, A, didn't believe in a vacuum, but more importantly, that's not a very natural state, right? Let's suck all the air out and then see what happens. And Aristotle would be saying, well, of course, you're messing with nature when you do that. If I just take a piece of paper and a rock, they fall at different speeds. That's the thing we want to explain. Uh, and so I'd say it's it's amazing how subtle little things like that shape mm. so much of the way that you move the that you you view the world. Mm -hmm. um, and in, there's another thing which is um, sometimes pointed out. All of these are a little bit oversimplified, but um, whereas Plato was a mathematician, um, Aristotle wanted to classify things. Yeah. So he didn't want to measure; he wanted to classify mm -hmm. things. And that probably comes out of actually at heart he's a biologist. Mm -hmm. uh, and and if you see nature you don't immediately i don't see that tree and immediately want to start counting the leaves and i don't think if i went to all the effort there'd be some beautiful mathematical law there and and so that emphasis on what i need to do to nature is classify um um it, it then you know uh, the thought that if i really went and measured some stuff i might discover some laws there is, is something that takes a while for people to realize they can that can be done mm -hmm. So uh, soon they'll be calling us for, you know, another 2000 calorie helping of pasta and bread, <laughs> which Luke and I want to partake of. So um, let's do a little bit of rapid fire kind of questions. Um, and just playing off the last topic we just talked about, Aristotle, um, if you give your students a set of books, only one set, would you give them or her the collected works of Aristotle or the Feynman lectures on physics? Oh, I have to say Feynman. Okay. Um, this, there, there is... There's two brilliant minds there, of course, yeah. uh, and I mean, I don't want—I I don't want to say that you know, oh, they're just as good as each other. No, look, the last couple of thousand years, we really have learned some stuff about the way the universe works, and it's more 
I'd like to think Aristotle would want Feynman's books as well. <laughs> Certainly would have a lot, a lot to uh, glean from them. Um, one recapitulation on the fine tuning problem. So, you know, Sean Carroll has passed multiple, multiple time guests on the show as you are now joining yeah, yeah. the pantheon of two time guests yes. on the show. <laughs> well, uh, bad, said, you know, there's no need for God. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a theory that's, you know, uh, you know, barely useful or, you know, maybe one of the least useful. It's still a theory. It's still, mm. there's no need for it. Um, and in that context, we, he and I talked long, a long time ago about, you know, the, take the standard model in his book, The Big Picture, and you say, where are these couplings and which couplings could couple to an agent? And there's really nothing in there that mm. could do that. And I phrased it a little differently when I spoke with uh, Stephen C. Meyer a couple of, you know, almost two years ago now for his book, The Return of the God Hypothesis, said, how does an intelligent agent you know, instantiate, you know, is there some knobs and mm-hmm. when does uh, he, uh, you know, and like Judeo-Christian said, when does he start in the manipulation? Is it like at the uh, BBN phase, you know, forming right, elements? Right. Is it at the stellar evolution phase? Is it at the genetic evolution phase? Mm. So in, how do you think of it? Like, how does the tuning get done? I mean, I, if I had to, you know, nail me down on something, I, th- I think the initial conditions. So there's a wonderful quote from John Wheeler, in his book at home in the universe actually it's a collection of essays but it's in there somewhere where he says nothing is clearer in it's a paraphrasing but almost nothing is clearer in physics um than what is and what isn't physics so the laws that govern the way particles move yes the initial velocities no right the initial conditions are really something else right. so if you're that that choice that you have to make there between, say, the way I view the world and, say, the way Sean views the world is, uh, I assume if you're Sean, if there are something like initial conditions, they're just the start of explanations and that's it. Mm-hmm. So he has, um, there's, a, there's a quote from his that I use a lot because I think it's very clear, which is the, you know, there, his view is that there is a chain of explanations in the universe which reaches the ultimate laws of nature and stops. And part of those laws of nature would be just initial conditions or boundary conditions or whatever they are. This is Wheeler or Carol? No, sorry, Carol. Okay. Uh, Carol said that. Um, and so, it, you know, either the choice is not between do you just let the universe run itself or do you have someone sticking their finger in? It's whatever these initial conditions are, are they just it? Or do you think there's some cause deeper than that mm. in reality? Um, so maybe I'll close. I usually have four existential questions. We only have time for one. Um, so in uh, Sabina Hassenfelder's most recent book, Existential Questions, or Existential Physics, which mm-hmm. you got from my topic calling uh, things existential uh, questions, I'm sure, <laughs> uh, there is, uh, there you are referred to. And I want to I want to uh, appropriately reference the quote. <laughs> but first, let me preface it by saying the progenitor of the name of the show is our, uh, Sir Arthur C. Clarke, um, who came up with the phrase, the only way to determine the limits of the possible is to go beyond them into the impossible. Mm-hmm. But another thing that he said is when an elderly but distinguished <laughs> scientist says something is possible, he is very likely correct. Mm. When he says something is impossible, he is most very mostly wrong. I want to ask you, as described by Sabina, as um, a middle-aged scientist, you're not elderly, uh, but you are distinguished. Uh, I won't say the other adjectives she describes uh, you by, but that, that's you know that's just her favorite curmudgeonly way of doing things. Um, <laughs> what have you changed your mind on, if anything? What have I changed my mind on? So in science, no, I'm I'm going to say what it was. <laughs> she, we we had a, a a discussion on it's on YouTube. You can go and find it. And she said something along reporting on this latest something online. Barnes turned out to be a 
big faced middle aged man with brown a beard, face. brown face or whatever <laughs> it was. And I I cut that quote out of the book. I got the book and then put it on my Facebook page. And everyone who knows me thought that was the funniest thing they'd ever seen. It's probably got the most likes of anything I put on any social yes, media sorry. platform. So thanks. Um, <laughs> I laughed my head off. That's fantastic. What have I changed my mind about? Uh, I grew up young earth creationist. That's the that's the really? that's the background that I grew up in. That was the church, but in Australia where it wasn't. So, for example, um, there was a debate between the pastor, who happened to be my father, <laughs> and the local um, science teacher at the local high school, who also went to the church, but on the validity of evolution hmm. um, as a theory, and people turned up, and it was quite. I, I just remember it being quite cordial. And it was fine. And, you know, it wasn't like people ran him out of the church or something. So it was, it was, it seems odd to say you have to sort of say this in the American context. It was young earth creationist, but somehow not dogmatic. Right. Um, Over the course of then getting, um, you know, I was good at maths, obviously. I'm now an astrophysicist. Uh, Going to university, learning physics, discovering that astrophysics is the best, and and then being able to actually look at the claims that had been made by young earth creationists about the age of the universe, realizing they all fell apart in my hands when I had the ability to look at them for myself. So that was, um, and then the the reason that didn't affect sort of my Christianity was that you know, the the most that follows from that is not God doesn't exist, but, oh, I've misunderstood it two chapters of the Bible, which there's plenty of chapters of the Bible I misunderstand. So that wasn't a major sort of uh, moment, but that's that was that was quite the process. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was quite the years of digging into this, that, and the other and, yeah. and trying to understand. And I salute you for having the courage, as we like to say, to go into the impossible. It takes a lot of courage, and, and you're renowned. Uh, for both the clarity of your presentation, your explanation, and the fact that you do so much outreach to the public. I, I really oh, salute that. You. I have a, you know, canard, I would say, you know, we scientists have a have a moral obligation to do share what we do oh, with I the public. So. And I think we have a venal financial interest as well, because if they don't understand what we do, yeah. they're going to stop supporting us. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Anyway, Luke, it's been a pleasure to meet you in yes, person. I have so to have you come back for our part three. Uh, thanks, everybody. Subscribe uh, to uh, to follow Luke on all social media links. We'll have those in the bottom. And uh, do tune in next time uh, for more exciting content on Into the Impossible. Thank you so much, Luke. Thank you. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to my YouTube channel, Dr. Brian Keating on YouTube, my Twitter, Brian Keating, Dr. Brian Keating rather, and Luke Barnes is also there as well. And you will uh, hopefully enter for your chance to win a fragment of the old earth, the old earth shaking around. Actually, it's not the earth, it's solar system from which the earth amalgamated, conglomerated, instantiated. I don't know. The point is you can win a fragment of a piece of meteorite space schmutz that I love to collect and send out to one of the next 100 people who sign up for my mailing list. I send out two emails a month, and uh, they're kind of the hottest, coolest content from around the world of STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, you know, with occasional philosophy and other things thrown in for good measure, like this week's episode. So with that, I bid you a wonderful rest of your week, and I hope you'll make it magical. That's what I always hope for you. Thanks for being a great, great part of the most magnificent set of minds in the multiverse. Music